Welcome back to History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 85, and as we've heard, the English settlers have just arrived in the Albany district, the year 1820. It had taken three months, and now all 5,000 settlers were ensconced on their land. For these settlers, it was an epic of pathetic naivety and makeshift survival. They would need to adapt or disappear. It was bewildering for most. They originated from England, Scotland, Ireland and Wales and had sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, surviving the landing at Algoa Bay, and then they had been driven to their farms on the frontier by Oxwagon, where they were left without so much as a helping hand. No effort was made to offer advice, and they were forbidden to approach the Amatosa or Koikoi for help. Their sons were going to herd the livestock and till the fields, unlike the Boers who still used Koikoi and mixed-race men and women to do their hard work. The landscape appeared perverse, waterless, and yet vegetated. The wildlife was breathtaking. Elephants would roam beside thorn fences they hastily erected. Thomas Pringle's party had arrived at Brenkies Hoogte when after a few days their first lion began to roar at midnight. So loud and tremendous that for a moment I actually thought a thunderstorm had burst upon us, said Thomas. They quickly reignited their evening fires, and a few days later spotted the lion standing alongside a nearby stream close to the party of settlers. It left them alone, and they left it alone, and for the next few days they heard its growls and its roars at night. In the African dark you would hear the elephants trumpeting, echoing off the nearby cliffs in the moonlight. Taking the lead from the Boers, these 1820 settlers began to build their first homes. They used wattle and clay, or wattle and daub as it's known, turning these little homes into neat thatched roof dwellings which were then whitewashed. For the floor, they broke up anthills, pounded them, mixed with water, spread this across the ground, and it became as hard as cement and was impervious to rain. Unlike the Boers, however, the British divided their houses into rooms instead of the communal single chamber used by the Trek Boers, where the family and the servants would sleep side by side. The English thought this was unacceptable. The climate meant that these simple houses served their purpose. They also quickly became used to sleeping under trees without shelter when travelling, like the Amatosa, the Boers and the Koikwe. To complain of a want of accommodation, some said, was as obsolete as a cold or a cough. You could find a quiet corner alongside the elephant trail where you'd make a fire and sleep under the remarkable southern hemisphere stars. Some of the settlers just dug a hole in the side of cliffs and used thatch overhangs as a covering. Others acclimatized more quickly, until spring that was, when the blistering heat took most off guard. It was merciless for those who needed to move and who'd grown up in the temperate climate of England, and their learning curve was a source of great amusement to the Boers and the Koikoi who watched from a distance. Cape Governor Lord Charles Somerset, as you know, was on holiday in England at this stage, but Acting Governor Sir Rufane Donkin had ordered an initial meat ration to be distributed to the settlers in the form of live sheep. One of the farmer parties tied the legs of the sheep together to prevent them from straying, but the animals were then torn apart by a flock of vultures. Their lack of knowledge about agriculture was stunning. Some planted their cobs of corn whole, others planted carrots two feet deep, some planted onions upside down, others tried to sow rice on grass, and all saw their wheat farms fail. When a few managed to germinate what was known as Indian corn, straight away 
the locusts descended. The first rains were floods, and others lost their crops. Then one of the six major droughts to hit this territory through the 1800s began in 1820. Talk about bad luck. This drought lasted until 1827, and the Cape authorities would only start building dams to deal with the lack of water in 1828. You have to wonder why they ever decided to stay on in South Africa and just give up and go home. But the vast majority did not. They remained in the Cape, although in the coming years, many would rue that decision. Sir Rufain had founded Bathurst, a little town. Then he ordered another town called Port Elizabeth to be built near Fort Frederick in Algoa Bay, named Elizabeth after his young wife who died in India. Some of the settlers began to stream to Port Elizabeth and other towns to ply their trades. Some turned to transport riding and began ivory hunting like the Boers, and others began an illicit trade with the Amatosa. The original British plan, which was to send gentry to set up vast new farms to maintain discipline through indenturing younger men and women, had virtually collapsed. The formal concept of this settler was an illusion, and the poorer people amongst the settlers became bitter, particularly about the speculators who I mentioned in an earlier podcast. Here they were, on the banks of the Fish River, bereft. They naturally turned to how the Boers survived, for a hint. The Khoikhoi were absent from their ancient land, forced out by both the Amatkoza and then the Boers, and the Amatkoza had been pushed to the east, so the English naturally took the lead of these Trek-Boer neighbours, these people who called themselves Afrikaners, and sought to understand what needed to be done to survive. They noticed the Boers were self-sufficient, where they were dependent. The Trek-Boers managed to keep going through the drought. They were intriguing. Their sparse lifestyle, which had initially been a source of superiority perception by these English, changed rapidly as they too began to live a far more Spartan existence. One of the first things to go were shoes. Boers were hardened by time in Africa, and very soon the English arrivals began to mimic their lifestyle. Within a few weeks, the British were dressing exactly like the Boers, because when it's 30 degrees centigrade, wearing two layers of jackets, socks and big leather boots is obviously nuts. So the English started walking around their farmyards barefoot, wearing white-brimmed hats, donning a single pair of leather trousers without shirts. Goldswain, who we met last episode, said, I could not bear to have any clothes on. These Europeans were being forced to rethink everything they knew about lifestyle and had to absorb new cultures rapidly. The Scots poet and humanitarian Thomas Pringle, who was shocked by how the Boers treated their Khoikhoi slaves initially, then seemed to approach the matter of race relations in a more philosophical bent. He wrote, Look at the depth of ungenerous and unchristian prejudice in regard to the coloured race which pervades free and religious America like a feculent moral fog. I do not consider Dutch African colonists as worse than other people in similar circumstances. Not certainly worse than the Spaniards in America, not worse perhaps than the British in Australia. He wasn't being hypocritical. During Sunday church services, Pringle broke frontier convention by making the Boer congregants sit amongst the Khoikhoi servants, as he and the other Scots churchgoers did. The Boers then stopped attending the Scots Presbyterian services, which was odd, because the settlers noted that the Boers easily and convivially sat down to eat with their servants. 
I have seen the old farmer, one of his sons, two or three Hottentots, and a black slave, sitting down to their meals together, and each as much at ease as the master who perhaps owned six thousand acres of land, wrote Pringle. But sitting in church together with the same people appeared to be another matter entirely. Still, the Boers and the British managed to get along as the settlers sought to find their place on this land. However, the Amakosa were not invited, even though they were neighbours, and as you'll hear shortly, the first visit by an Amakosa group of warriors to harvest ochre from within the Albany district was going to cause fear and the death of a young man. Thomas Pringle was confused by the Boers, who appeared God-fearing and yet went off hunting on the Sabbath, which shocked the straight-laced Brits. Later, it sunk in that the Boers had evolved on the land, where the luxury of taking a day off instead of organising food was not clever, where drought and hunger was a constant threat, so using every day to its fullest was necessary, whether Sabbath or not. And the settlers, who were supposed to be planting gardens and crops, recognised something else. Without irrigation or improved fertilisers, the soil was so bad, this agriculture lifestyle they had been sold was impossible. They had turned their gaze on how the Boers lived, and saw that livestock was their salvation. One day Pringle was standing near Trekpo, who pointed to a cloud of dust moving up the valley towards his home, and he said, There come my cattle, the best garden. In that moment and instant, the truth of the Albany district was laid bare, and Pringle immediately began pressurizing the colonial authorities to grant the settlers more land, so they could become livestock farmers. Where Somerset had planned to plant the settlers in a contained area, these men and women were not to be constrained, but the reality was there was no land available. Livestock farming needs a great deal more territory when it's arid than agriculture. The Amatkosa were already languishing to the east. The Trekboers had secured the best pastures between the Amatkosa and the Cape Colony. Here is the paradox. These settlers noted how the Trekboers went about their lives and realised they should copy that lifestyle. They ate traditional Trekpur and Amatkosa foods like mutton and game flesh and milk and dried fruit and boiled corn, pup as we know it, corn that was ground and then stamped with water, mixed with meat and beans when available, mush or samp and beans. This is where Miles Bowker, remember the man descended from Elizabeth Boucher who married Oliver Cromwell, this is where his family began to excel. The Bowkers turned rather rapidly into what some called a tough lot, survivors of the First Order remoulding themselves into Africans. As the experiences grew, these new arrivals took on the form of the bush themselves, and none more so than the Balkas. The seven sons of Miles were aged between 10 and 17 when they arrived, and turned into what is known as a pack of tough men, pretty much overnight. When the going got tough, these kids got going. Bertram Bowker was 12 when he landed on the shores of Algoa Bay and did not consume tea or coffee, brandy, wine or eat sugar until he was 25 years old. These were beyond luxuries for him and his family. There's a myth that has developed through this day that these folks were kind of soft, that the Empire had handed them a Garden of Eden and all they did was steal someone else's land and get rich. But these revisionists get a great deal badly wrong. The frontier was a wild zone. The British officials had handed these settlers a hospital pass, and yet they didn't run away from southern Africa. 
These Bauka boys, unlike the Boers, did the physical work on their farm, the ploughing, the herding, and the younger boys, like the Boers, had no education. They forgot how to read and write. But their education was the landscape and how to read the bush. The honeybird in particular, that instructive relationship between humans and the natural world, the honeybird emerged as their access to sugary treats. The Balkas learned that if they fired their musket, then the local honeybird would seek them out. Sometimes they'd hit stones against stones or clang a rock against metal. Then the honeybird would fly down, directing the boys to a tree where the bees could be found and the honey, and that was their sugar treat. I've had a bird show me eleven nests at one time and nine at another, boasted Bertram Bowker later. When they cleared the bees, they would leave all the bits of hive lying about, and the honeybird would eat the bee larva. Thus, the ancient relationship between this bird and humans in Africa continued. The settlers also took to hunting on a Sunday, which had shocked them about the Boers when they arrived, and which continued to shock the missionaries and the priests. These new arrivals quickly established that no one was going to stop them exploring their landscape, so they ignored the Fish River boundary. Some built rafts of reeds and crossed the river. On the Amakosa side, they began to kill reed buck, roasting the meat and the marrow bones, or raiding ostrich nests for eggs. They then killed the leopards by trapping them with dogs, avoiding shooting the poor beasts so they could sell the skin by spearing them down their throats, or killing them by clubbing them to death. The Balkas were in their element, apparently. They subsisted on the felt like the Khoikhoi had done before the Amakosa arrived, and they now had developed a rapport with the Boers. But they had no rapport whatsoever with the mysterious Amakosa, living supposedly a safe distance away across the Fish and Kaiskama rivers. And of course, the Amakosa watched these new arrivals splashing around in their rivers and chewing on their ostrich eggs and marrow bones and were not happy at all. Had the British authorities thought a little more about things, perhaps they would have cottoned on that this was not a wise policy. Separate development never works in the long term. Something has to give. Donkin and Somerset believed the Amakosa were now quite happy way to the east beyond the Kaiskama River, but they were not as far away as everyone imagined. They had roamed this land for hundreds of years and weren't about to stop now. Nine months after the settlers landed, a gestation of time, if you like. The Amakosa rolled into town. If you've listened to the series from the start, you'll know by now that ochre played a vital role in rituals and culture, both for the Khoikhoi and the Amakosa. And the use of this red mineral was deeply embedded, a resource enjoyed for thousands of years by the people of southern Africa. The sand first, then the Khoikhoi. The newer arrivals, the Amakosa loved ochre too. It was religious, traditional, symbolic, a reference of self, part of the identity of a warrior. They would smear themselves with it glinting red in the sun, driving fear into the hearts of their enemies. The British had already faced Amakosa warriors who'd covered their bodies in the burnished gloss of ochre, their uniform of the ages. And the settlers were unprepared for what they saw when the first group of Amakosa men arrived. After Enrique had been thrown off his own land as part of the Albany clearances, he'd managed to negotiate an important exception to be allowed back across the Fish River. That was for his men to be allowed to enter the area just west of the river, on special occasions, to harvest red clay from what was known as the clay pits. 
So in January 1821, the hero of the Battle of Grahamstown had forgotten to tell the newly arrived settlers about this arrangement. Colonel Wilshire had survived War Doctor Ngayeli's attack in 1819 and was still Commandant of the Frontier Forces. He was also building a fort on the banks of the Kaiskama River that was to take his name. But for some reason, neither he nor Duncan informed the new settlers about the Amakosa Oka deal. This was going to cause a great deal of friction because the man on whose property the red clay was found was an Irishman and not just any old Irishman. His name was Thomas Mahoney, the leader of one of the parties of settlers, and during the crossing by ship from Ireland, he'd made a name for himself by terrorising the other passengers, and then, then punched the captain of his ship and ended up handcuffed and sent to the brig for assault. Unfortunately for the settlers and the Amakosa, the land upon which Mahoney had landed was famous for red ochre, the clay used for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years for rituals, both for war and peace. There was Mahoney, this angry man, toiling away on land that was unforgiving, when the Amakosa pitched up one day and began scraping bits of this land into their baskets. Not just any old group of Amakosa too. Some said there were around 1,000, others more like 5,000. We believe it was more like a few hundred warriors at least who marched onto Mahoney's land, or to put it more accurately, Kosa land that Mahoney now regarded as his and the Irishmen did not take too kindly to this invasion. The settlers were told that Amakosa lived to the east and were forbidden to enter the Albany region. They were also told to avoid contact, although it's true that some of the 1820 settlers had already broken that rule. As the Amakosa warriors made their way from the Fish River due west to the clay pits, they crossed a number of other settler farms. Mahoney and the other settlers could do nothing, and after seeing that these farms were unprotected, some of the Amakosa warriors decided they'd seize livestock on their walkabout. It's hungry work, marching across the Eastern Cape. At first, the cattle and sheep rustling was non-violent, but that changed. By the time these isolated Eastern settlements had gained the name Forlorn Hope, one of the English boys herding his cows was caught and stabbed to death by the warriors, who then stole the cattle he was guarding. The book this youngster had been reading was found in the bush, along with his coat reportedly covered in holes where he'd been assegaied. His body had been eaten by hyenas, and his death sent the first message to these newly arrived settlers that peace on the frontier was an illusion. The territorial dispute was not over. Some of the settlers still did not understand what was going on. Even Phillips, one of the gentrified landowners who was supposed to be in the know, did not know. Back in Newtonhag, Lord Charles Somerset's son Henry, he who had caused so much trouble for Stockenstrom, decided to do something about the murder. Ngrika was sent a message that it was his people who had killed the English boy, and after denying any knowledge of the incident, Ngrika produced a man he said was behind the murder. Henry Somerset sent a patrol under Lieutenant Colonel Morris Scott to capture the man, which they did. Then they took him to Ngrika to have him executed by the chief. Ngrika refused, saying that while the man was the murderer, he'd actually done the chief himself no harm, so he shouldn't be executed. Scott then ordered his men to stand to arms. Ngrika knew it was coming next, so gave the order. The rope was pulled around the suspect's neck, and he was strangled in seconds. 
This was the first hanging of Amakosa in the Eastern Cape by the British authorities. There were hundreds dead already in the sweeping wars, but this was the first official execution in the territory. But the farming settlers weren't the only spanner in the Eastern Cape works. We'll come back to their story next episode. We need to cast our eyes further afield once more for a moment. By now, there were missionaries dotted around the Eastern Cape and in Griqualand, along the Orange River, and they were mobilizing over the issues of justice, and something called the contradiction of humanitarianism was imminent. There is a close relationship between early 19th century philanthropy and colonialism, particularly as abolition of slavery laws began to be passed. There was a growing consensus that the position of the empire should be made more moral despite its violent tone. And at the same time, there was a titanic struggle going on between colonial structures and abolitionists, something that historian Michael Barnett calls a humanitarian Big Bang was on the go. The borderlands, for example, between the Iroquois people and colonial New York in the 1770s, all the contested land across the Orange River and beyond the Cape through the 1770s to 1820 and beyond became part of this humanitarian Big Bang era, a topic to pursue by pamphleteers in London. Without resorting to academic polemic, the story of the missionaries and their role in Southern Africa is riddled with subjective opinion, fear, loathing, love, every emotion in the book. As you've already heard, and in the future we'll hear a lot more, the Transorangia region with its mixed-race peoples, escaped slaves, its European deserter soldiers, the Khoikhoi people displaced from the peninsula and the Cape, was a unique place on a sentient land. The missionaries, being men of the flesh, however, suffered from a few weaknesses. Take London Missionary Society's James Reed as an example. He, who had an affair with a Khoikhoi teenager and made her pregnant, and who took off for the Orange River in disgrace. Then he was recalled to Cape Town in 1818 to atone for his sexual philandering, all the while dragging his poor, long-suffering wife, and a leather-bound copy of the King James Version of the Bible along with him. The Batlaping Tswana leader, Motibi, had tolerated the London Missionary Society's activities along his river. Now he was to face something unusual. An indigenous humanitarian or missionary, a Khoi man called Jan Hendricks, had been trying to solve a human rights riddle along the river. The Boers and the Bastas, as they were known, the Afrikaners and the Griqua, pushing their way into Matibi's territory. Jan Hendricks had converted to Christianity, and he was to try and solve this riddle. Violence, however, was going to break out in a place called Griqua Town shortly, but more about that next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, goodbye. Thank you.